Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Russia's history is as surprising, rich, varied, and unique as any great nation's, and it can be hard for people like your host, with a perspective unavoidably shaped by the relative youth and future focus of the United States, to wrap our minds around a culture whose roots run so deep. But because most of our discussion of the nation and its people here is necessarily going to dwell on the negative, it's important to acknowledge at the outset Russia and Russians are fucking rad. This is the homeland not only of Peter and Catherine the Great, but of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, Bulgakov, Gogol, Tarkovsky, and Solzhenitsyn. I don't want to imagine a world without the plays of Chekhov, and the world should never forget the sacrifice the great patriotic army and Soviet people made to crush the fighting spirit of the Nazis at the expense of nearly 30 million lives. I grew up in a time when Russia was the enemy, and then a basket case, and then a tentative friend, and now once again an enemy. Unfortunately. But I don't want to give any listeners the impression that, however much we're going to focus on its unique problems and prejudices, and the way they impact the rest of the world, that I am in any way dismissive of the nation, its people, or its culture. We get it. You're a big old borscht lover. Actually, the culinary focus on the beat would go in the negative column for me, though Lady Jesuit would heartily disagree. But yes, point is, in an ideal world, Russia would be a thriving, free nation leveraging its deep cultural knowledge and natural resources to help make the whole world a better place. Presumably, in the same ideal world, the U.S. is a utopia, using its immense wealth to put right the many historic wrongs it has committed, to provide first-class healthcare and education to its citizens, and to lead the globe into a bright, carbon-free future. Fair enough. And we're going to take Murica to task later in this series, you may rest assured. But still, we went into this topic honestly wondering, how does such an amazing country like Russia descend into a kleptocratic cacistocracy? Rain it in, Captain Thesaurus. Whose chief non-oil export is inflammatory social media hacks sowing discord in its own and other nations' cultures, and which appears increasingly to be ruled by conspiracists getting ruinously high on their own supply. As we write this, Putin's unjustifiable assault on Ukraine grinds on at a horrifying cost in lives and materiel, and though his initial ideal of a quick, crushing victory has been righteously stymied by Zelensky's unconquerable countrymen and women, 
the conflict has no end in sight. From our safe perch thousands of miles away, we have the same questions everyone else does about this conflict. How the fuck did we get here? To a situation where a QAnon-quality conspiracy mania has bent and twisted an entire nation into a perspective that's completely at odds with the reality that the rest of the world shares? To find out, we of course sought out experts. Masha Gessen, New Yorker reporter and author of Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Elliot Borenstein, NYU professor of Russian and Slavic studies and author of Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism. And finally, and most importantly, Ilya Yablokov, who, because he was kind enough to be interviewed by us, can introduce himself. So my name is Ilya Yablokov. I'm an expert in Russian and East European conspiracy theories. I'm also author of the book Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World. As we embark on this topic, it's important for us, with our experts' help, to ask what, at its core, the conspiracy theory that drives Russia's current, otherwise inexplicable international actions, is. Like, what's the big Russian conspiracy theory that animates everything else? There's certainly one that's been haunting the Russian people for um, at least two centuries, is this idea that the West is trying to get us. It's been always trying to destroy Russia, that all the bad things that happened in the past, from assassinations of state leaders to the great revolutions to the war defeats, they were all orchestrated to make Russia weak and eventually to make Russia disappear from the face of the planet. However, the central narrative after that is that nothing can break Russia apart and that the Russian soul, Russian spirit, they always protected Russia. They always helped Russia to kind of recover and rule that part of the world uh, quite successfully. Or, as Elliot Borenstein succinctly puts it in his book, The Russian conspiratorial narrative offers a story that always reaffirms Russia's role as the hero of history, while emphasizing its status as the world's victim or offended party. Ha! So silly. What kind of a country is based around a ridiculous, totally unprovable myth like that? This is the point where he gives me the uncomfortable job of reminding our preponderantly American audience that their nation has traditionally been very, very fond of similarly unsupported and historically questionable rhetoric. During Jesuit's pre-college education in the Reagan-Bush 80s and early 90s, for example, textbooks were pretty flippant about uncritical usage of terms like manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, and even, to quote the Gipper himself, shining city upon a hill. Yeah, that. And when you think about it, QAnon itself is another sort of world-spanning, America-centric conspiracy where only the great leader, Donald Trump, and his forces of good can root out a global satanic conspiracy. Or, again, to quote Borenstein, The first, and perhaps most obvious feature of the Russian narrative, is that they place Russia squarely at the center of modern world history. The only reason this might surprise Americans, and perhaps the French and Germans, is that they think this spot has already been occupied by none other than themselves. It is in the nature of a great power, whether current, aspiring, or fading, to adopt such a worldview, because history rewards confirmation bias. So the mythical situation vis-a-vis the U.S. is pretty similar, really, with the caveat that Russians' core narrative is a pure and holy land besieged and struggling, while Americans expect clean, easy victories and a painless shift to a world where everyone prospers under the benevolent hand of good old Uncle Sam. 
Still, as Yablokov points out, because of our mutual fondness for national myths, our nations also share a trademark weakness. Russia is definitely a conspiracy-prone society. In that sense, it's a twin brother of the United States. One is democratic, another one is authoritarian, but there is one thing that makes both societies conspiratorial, is the idea of messianic mission. Like the United States, Russia is also striving to save the world, to bring something meaningful and super useful to the world in order to protect it, in order to make it better. And given that we're trying here to understand our own overwhelming wave of conspiracy theories through the lens of Russia, which is itself a major part of the big Q conspiracy narrative, and which also suffers from and exports its own conspiracy manias, it behooves us to understand exactly how this great, unique nation became so caught up in its fear of the West and its perception of its own unique world historical position as embattled savior, that we now face a present where not just large parts of the populace, but the Russian state, the government of a country with a large, albeit kind of shittily armed and trained based on their performance in recent months, military, and thousands of nukes, some significant number of which are unlikely to be launchable, see previous comment about shittily armed and trained military, but that's cold comfort when one of the functional ones turns your mid-sized American city into a fireball. Why such a state seems totally driven by adherence to bizarre conspiracies. Since, you know, ideally, we'd like to see how far along the same road a certain group of United American states are. Since said group sports, like, the biggest, most technologically and unquestionably deadly army in the history of the world, plus a truly disconcerting number of extremely launchable and almost definitely functioning as intended nukes. Come on, unicorn. That analogy would only be germane if said nation of United States had demonstrated over the past half-decade-plus a real tendency to elect unqualified, unserious, conspiracy-believing, narcissistic buffoons to the highest offices in the land, even handing over to said buffoons near-total control of said army and nukes. And even then, a significant minority of that population would have to embrace a conspiracy theory where that aforementioned vain nincompoop is the only hope the world has to combat an otherwise unstoppable secret evil. Shit. Anyway, to ground our exploration, we as usual start with some history. In this case, per Professor Yablokov, we begin way back in the 19th century with the Crimean War. Hit us with the basics. The Crimean War, fought from 1853 to 1856, was triggered when Russia invaded and tried to wrest control of much of what was known as the Holy Land from the Ottoman Empire. Short version, they lost badly and unexpectedly to the Ottomans, thanks to the fact that the Turks were supported by the French and the English, who cynically propped up their nominal rival to serve as a buffer protecting their interests from Russia. The professor takes it from here. The Crimean War was a serious watershed for the Russian society. The emperor, Nikolai I, a politician focused on the military prowess of the Russian Empire, at some point decided to invade the territories of the Osman Empire, as they called it, the weak man of Europe. 
So Nikolai decided to invade, basically take under control the territories of today's Israel, Palestine and Syria because it was such an important and significant Christian center. It all resulted in the major defeats of the Russian Empire. Militarily and politically, Russia lost access to the Black Sea for more than 20 years. But the reasons for the failure was corruption and was inefficiency, because the Russian Empire was relatively good at the end of the 18th century, but then it was not developing technologically and politically and, and industrially and culturally. So Russia was lagging behind, but not in the minds of its establishment. You sense that there are some parallels between what happened in the mid-19th century and what is happening now with Russia and Ukraine. Nikolai died. His son, Alexander, came to power. And Alexander was focused on making the country economically and politically and kind of socially developed. The loss in the Crimea War caused the great liberal reforms. Those reforms that indeed turned the Russian Empire into one of the leading states right on the eve of the First World War in 1914. That was kind of the positive outcome of the Crimean defeat. The negative outcome was that immense wave of anti-Western thinking. When Russia invaded the territories of the Osman Empire, both the British Empire and the French got engaged in the battles trying to protect the Osmans because having the Osman Empire defeated meant that they both had to deal with the Russian Empire alone on the European continent. So as a result, that helped a lot of anti-Western thinkers in the Russian Empire to see that all their fears about the West, about how cunning the Britons could be, for example, they all true. They came with a stab in the back and tried to destroy Russia. Great reforms modernize Russia, but at the same time, the loss in the war create the reasons for like true, genuine fear of the Western plot. Then, when Alexander is assassinated in 1881, his son comes to the front and starts one of the most conservative terms of the Russian emperor in office. Just like in today's Russia, all those anti-Western thinkers, they become the elite of the Russian Empire. They design the curriculum schools. They kick out liberals and Jews from the universities. The mindset is the same. They constantly repeated that. Russian Empire doesn't have friends. Russia's best friends are Russia's fleet and Russia's army. It's a very military-oriented ideology. And that also came to the fore as a result of the Crimean War and Russia's defeat in it. So defeat in the Crimean War in the long run led to important liberal reforms, but also to an ascendancy of anti-Western thinkers and conspiracy theories within the political and intellectual establishment. So this created the base level for the grand Russian definitional conspiracy. But then an enormous, one might say, a revolutionary event happened in 1917. That would be the Russian Revolution. Appropriately named. 
As everyone knows, this is the coup in which Lenin and his comrades wrested control away from the czars who had enjoyed 350-plus years of more or less unquestioned rule over the nation. And then they murdered the last Tsar, Nicholas II, and his whole family in cold blood. Indeed. But of course, the national conspiracy obsession hardly stopped with the Bolsheviks' takeover of the Russian state in 1917, nor with their consolidation of the former Russian Empire into the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics a few years later. Which seems counterintuitive. The whole idea of communism was that it was derived from a supposedly scientific analysis of the inevitable tides of history. Why, then, should the vanguard of the inevitable workers' revolution fall so quickly into baseless conspiracy thinking, if history was so definitely on their side? To be fair to them, the conspiracies weren't entirely baseless. They had good reasons for paranoia. After all, the Bolsheviks had conspired their way to power, and of course there were, in fact, international forces that conspired against them, not just the exiled white Russian anti-communist army against whom they had just won a civil war. From the start, the capitalist states of Europe, as well as the U.S., didn't take kindly to the idea of the USSR as the great vanguard of the soon-to-be international communist movement to overthrow their economies and systems of government. And so, Lenin and co. were right to be concerned about conspirators. Borenstein, again, considering a century of Russian history in the light of the suggestion that Russians and their government are paranoid, says, But even if we momentarily accept the paranoid label, we must immediately add the qualifier justifiably. In the 20th century alone, the Western Allies sent a military expedition to intervene in the Russian Civil War, 1918, and the Soviet Union was invaded by the Nazis, whose defeat was followed by the formation of a coalition of powerful countries dedicated to, at the very least, containing the Soviet threat. The same century also saw the collapse of statehood on two separate occasions, 1917 and 1991. Hence the popular appeal of Putin's rhetoric of state sovereignty. Failed statehood is not just conceivable, it is part of the lived experience of the majority of the adult population. But back to the first half of the Soviet era, things changed a great deal once Lenin died and Stalin took over. On one hand, the former Yosef Zhugashvili cynically used conspiracy and paranoia as an instrument by which he consolidated power. For example, his trumped-up arrests and show trials of political enemies. On the other hand, when things went wrong with the USSR's nascent industrial output, including entirely predictable issues with mechanical and other failures, the official newspaper of the state, Pravda, had this to say back in 1937. We know that engines do not stop by themselves. Machine tools do not break down on their own. Boilers do not explode on their own. Someone's hidden behind these events. Now, neither I nor... Anybody involved with this show is an industrial espionage expert, but it seems like the flaw of fucking thermodynamics would indicate that yes, in fact, all of these things do happen, without any nefarious human agency. So Uncle Joe and his regime were clearly getting a teensy bit paranoid, seeing sabotage behind every broken factory widget, a deliberate plot by saboteurs and outside agents to destroy the great five-year plans. So he asked Professor Yablokov to help us understand how much of this was creating excuses for arrests that suited Stalin's whims, and how much reflected genuine paranoia among Soviet higher-ups? That's a good question. The mindset of the Bolsheviks was shaped by conspiratorial views. They created the first state of workers and peasants. A huge global social experiment. They had no template to copy they saw that this always could be the return of capitalism. 
and they will not be kind to the Bolsheviks. When Joseph Stalin chose to close the country and uh, create an industrially modernized state, Stalin also realized that there will be a lot of pressure coming to him from all layers of the Soviet society who were simply not ready for this great experiment that costed millions of people's lives. Lots of people were against that. There were several scenarios, and Stalin defeated them all. When he was defeating them, he was seeing them as plotters, as conspirators. So he saw conspiracies everywhere. At the same time, Stalin was getting lots of different reports from different people through different channels. In that sense, he had to be like super critical about everything he receives in order to make the right move. And as we know, in 1941, he made the wrong move. When the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin thought his days were over. As a result, he freaked out when his closest allies came to his summer house. He thought they came to kill him. So for him, the fear, the embodiment of conspiracy was realized. But they were too afraid of him. So they didn't even consider murdering him. They were afraid for their lives. So they came and said, Joseph, you have to lead us. External factors, but also the nature of the society that the Bolsheviks were trying to build, they all sort of pushed to the conspiratorial explanation. If you infuse those conspiratorial motives all the time into your day-to-day life, into propaganda, into the daily routine when you make decisions based on the the ideological framework, well, certainly you will become a paranoid. And that would happen to the Soviet leadership. And of course, as Borenstein rightly reminds us, it's not as if all of the theories pouring out of the Soviet Union during the Cold War were fabrications of the Politburo. He recalls, In the fall of 1986, when I was studying in Leningrad, a friend showed me a Soviet newspaper report that Ronald Reagan's government was selling arms to Iran in order to fund the Contras, the right-wing rebels who were trying to overthrow Nicaragua's socialist government. We both rolled our eyes, but admitted to a sense of perverse admiration. You had to hand it to those Soviet propagandists. Every now and then, they displayed a real spark of imagination. Except, of course, they hadn't. The Iran-Contra affair really happened even if nearly everyone involved got away scot-free. Iran-Contra was so Baroque that the Illuminati and the underground lizard people would have fit right in, if it weren't for the fact that this particular conspiracy actually happened. At this point, having covered the imperial and Soviet layers of official paranoia, we jump decades forward to the 1991 collapse of the USSR. For those too young to remember, a surprisingly friendly-seeming man with a ketchup stain on his forehead oversaw the final collapse of Reagan's evil empire. 
Then, a friendly drunken bear named Boris took over, and the U.S. and its allies breathed a huge sigh of relief as it became painfully clear that the communist colossus we had all grown up fearing was at this point hanging out on the side of the road with a will-trade-nukes-for-food sign. Which, again, at the time, seemed like a great turn of events for your young person in the U.S. of A., where failing to foresee easily foreseeable consequences is kind of a national pastime. Next, a bunch of Western economists and technocrats flooded into the zone, intent on shaken-baking Russia into a modern, democratic state with a healthy market economy. Then, the government sold off huge state-owned industries to whatever bureaucrats or gangsters could cobble together a few million in hard currency, and the famous Russian oligarchs were born. This wasn't exactly supposed to happen, per the Western experts. All Russians were supposed to benefit from the privatizing of their industries equally. But, you know, that, like, never happens, ever. So, no big surprise. And the whole democracy thing kind of ran aground on the shoals of endemic corruption by essentially everyone in the government, definitely including President Boris Yeltsin. And somewhere in the middle there, there's this attempted coup by some of the old commies, where Yeltsin stands on a tank and then that goes away. I admire the brevity of the summary, but I think it's probably a bit lacking in strict accuracy and historical nuance. Sure, sure. But the point is, now we get to the end of the decade. It's late 1998. Yeltsin is a shell of a man, his vigor sapped by alcohol and related health problems. He's struggling to figure out how to stay in power and avoid prosecution for corruption when he does leave office in a year or so. His advisors hit upon the idea of promoting the head of the FSB, that's the post-Soviet version of the KGB, to prime minister, anointing him Yeltsin's chosen successor and then tilting the electoral scales even further by having Yeltsin step down and let the guy become acting president for the next year even as he's running for that office. The beauty of the plan, from the perspective of the pro-democracy forces who were advising Yeltsin, was that the guy they were backing was a total nobody, a personality-free cipher, whom they all felt could be manipulated into doing whatever he was told. He's acting like y'all don't know the name of this dude, but, spoiler alert, it's Mr. Shirtless on Horseback, the guy with a hard-on for bombing the shit out of Ukraine. We do need a bit of additional context. Do we, or can you just not stop yourself? Often it's option B, but in this case we really do need to go over this topic for the rest of the story to make sense. One of the increasingly intractable nightmare scenarios unspooling over the 1990s was the ongoing turmoil in Chechnya, a region that Russia considers part of its territory, but that, for a number of reasons, didn't love Russia back. The main sticking point being that the majority Muslim population has felt like it's been suppressed and dominated by Russian Christian society, but only since like the 18th century. True, but in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when all kinds of ethnic enclaves were carving out various levels of independence from the Russian monolith, the Chechens took their shot, leading to the first Chechen civil war, which Yeltsin oversaw from 94 to 96, which resulted in the Chechens essentially giving up their independence cause in exchange for some degree of autonomy. However, in April 1999, a group of Chechens slipped into neighboring Dagestan in support of an Islamist separatist group in that region. By early September, the Russian forces had pretty much quashed that uprising, sending the Chechens back across their borders. When suddenly... A series of bombings spread over three weeks, targeted civilians across Russia, killing hundreds of innocent people and sending a wave of fear throughout the country. And here we turn to Masha Gessen, their book... A quick aside for grammar fanatics. Yes, we know we just referred to Masha Gessen, singular human, by the pronoun they... We did that because that's how Masha Gessen wants us to refer to them. Jesuit wants you to know that, as a cranky middle-aged grammar snob, this hits his ear weirdly too. But you know what hits his ear even worse? Disrespecting people's self-identification. 
in the immortal words of a great fictional boxer to a waning but still scary Soviet Union. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Except, you know, substitute Jesuit for Stallone there. You get it. Damn straight. Also, I want you to know we double-check all of our references in Flights of Fancy to make sure we don't reuse them. We checked our archive scripts for that Rocky quote. And yes, we found we had already used it. In another QAnon script, funnily enough. So, if you're as fanatical as we are about this stuff, just know that we realized that, and we used it anyway. Because... USA, 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 USA. Back to Gessen. Their book picks up the story in 1999. The author, a native Russian whose family had emigrated to the U.S. during Gessen's teenage years, had returned to the motherland in the 90s to report on the nation's post-Soviet development. One morning, they hear a surprising suggestion from their editor. You know, some people are saying that FSB is behind the bombings. My editor, one of the smartest people I knew, said to me when I walked in one afternoon in September 1999, Do you believe it? The narrative goes on to explain the carnage that this rumor was laying at the feet of the nation's secret police force. For three weeks, Moscow and other Russian cities had been terrorized by a series of explosions. The first occurred on August 31st in a crowded shopping mall in the center of Moscow. One person died, and more than 30 people were injured. Five days later, an explosion brought down a large part of an apartment block in the southern city of Buynaksk, not far from Chechnya. 64 people were killed and 146 injured. But all of the building's residents were Russian military officers and their families. So, although the dead included 23 children, the blast did not have the effect of making civilians, especially civilians living in Moscow, feel vulnerable and scared. Four days later, however, at two seconds before midnight on September 8th, a giant blast sounded in a bedroom neighborhood outside Moscow's city center. A densely populated concrete city block was ripped in half, Two of its stairwells, 72 apartments in total, completely obliterated. Exactly 100 people died. Nearly 700 more were injured. Five days later, another explosion brought down another building on the outskirts of Moscow. The blast came at five in the morning, which meant that most residents were home at the time. Almost all of them were killed. 124 people were dead and seven injured. Three days after that, on September 16, A truck blew up on the street in Volgodonsk, a city in southern Russia. 19 people died, and over a thousand were injured. Yes, the unthinkable idea is that the FSB, seeking to tip the scales in favor of their former head, a man running for the presidential post he was already acting in, deliberately set off a series of horrific attacks on its own population simply to rally the Russian people against the supposed Chechen perpetrators and position their boy Putin as the strong hand who would destroy these terrorist vermin, so long as the grateful Russian people returned the favor by electing him to the office he was already acting in. Now, we definitely don't want to say that there is a 100% we landed on the moon, vaccines don't cause autism, the world is round. (coughs) Oblate. Spheroid. Regardless, there's not that level of proof that Putin and his supporters are behind these attacks. And those of you who have been here for a while will recognize that we talked about this topic in our False Flags episode. At the time, we limited ourselves to noting that the reports about the FSB's involvement were credible. But having dived more deeply into the topic this time, we're finding it hard to see how any other explanation even makes sense. Especially, of course, when you factor in one other incident, examined in an early 2000s documentary by a then-independent Russian news channel that Gessen summarizes here. Just after 9 that evening, September 22nd, a bus driver for the local soccer team was returning home to a 12-story brick apartment building at 14 Novoselov Street. 
he saw a Russian-made car pull up to the building. A man and a woman got out and went in through a door leading to the cellar, while the driver, another man, stayed in the car. Kartofelnikov watched the man and the woman emerge a few minutes later. Then the car pulled right up to the cellar door, and all three unloaded heavy-looking sacks and carried them into the cellar. They all then returned to the car and left. By this time, four buildings had been blown up in Moscow and two other cities. Kartofelnikov called the police. The police arrived nearly 45 minutes later. Two officers entered the cellar, where they found three 50-kilogram sacks marked sugar, stacked one on top of another. Through a slit in the top sack, they could see wires and a clock. They ran out of the cellar to call for reinforcement and began evacuating residents from the 77 apartments in the building while the bomb squad was on its way. Even before all the residents had made it outside, the bomb squad had disabled the timer and analyzed the contents of the sacks. They concluded it was hexogen, a powerful explosive in use since World War II. It was also the substance used in at least one of the Moscow explosions, so the entire country had learned the word hexogen from an announcement made by the mayor of Moscow. The crudely made detonation mechanism contained a clock set for 5.30 in the morning. The terrorist plan was apparently exactly the same as in the Moscow explosions. The amount of explosive would have destroyed the building entirely, and possibly damaged nearby structures, killing all residents in their sleep. So, feel-good story. Citizen vigilance stops a potential tragedy. But as you might expect, it doesn't end there. Soon after the incident, the FSB held a press conference where they announced that bags full of wires and material that had positively tested as high explosives were actually just bags of sugar, and the whole thing was a training exercise. Which explanation nobody believed. Like, even the guy delivering this nonsense at the press conference couldn't seem to bring himself to pretend to believe it. And suddenly, it made it seem likely instead that maybe that foiled bombing, like all of the other bombings, was not executed by Chechen terrorists, but rather by secret police Putin backers. We're not talking out of our hat here, asked David Satter, a journalist who spent decades reporting on Russia, only to be expelled for his reporting on this story. There was an enormous amount of material in the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, uh, which pointed to the possibility and, in fact, the likelihood that the authorities themselves blew up those buildings. I, I asked for documents from the CIA, from the FBI, uh, from the Directorate of National Intelligence, from the State Department. I got very, very little that was of any use, but I did get a few documents from the State Department which indicated that their sources of information were telling them that the apartment bombings were extremely suspicious. You had to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see what was going on. And in particular, you had to be willfully ignorant if you didn't see the implications of the Riazan incident in which three FSB agents were arrested for putting a fifth bomb in a building. Even though the bomb didn't go off, it was a live bomb. What was it doing in the basement of an apartment building?
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, folk music fans. Gordon Lightfoot is one of the greatest folk rock artists ever, and now there's a podcast celebrating and discussing his work song by song. It's called Carefree Highway Revisited, and every episode, your host, that's me, Mike Messner, will examine one of Gordon's songs with the help of a special guest. So, if that's your cup of tea, why don't you follow us on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. That's Carefree Highway Revisited.